Hi everyone. Thank you so much for tuning in to the second episode of Precedented Times. But before you hear today's episode, I want to provide a quick disclaimer in light of events that took place earlier this week. This episode was written and recorded before the trial of Derek Chauvin had begun, and before the tragic murder of Dante Wright. As such, neither topic is mentioned in this episode. However, the murder of George Floyd and the struggles of both the Black Lives Matter and the civil rights movements are all touched upon. Given the events of this week, some listeners may find these topics particularly distressing or triggering at this time. Discretion is advised. Additionally, while I stand behind the sentiments expressed in this podcast, particularly towards the ending, I recognize that it may sound more hopeful or optimistic than many of us may feel in this moment. I want to hold space for those like myself who found the events this week to be taxing on their emotional and mental health. Please take time for yourself and time away from the news. This episode will be here when you get back. If you'd like to help support Dante Wright's son or girlfriend, you can contact Holistic Hose, that's H-E-A-U-X, on Instagram. Thank you so much for listening, and let's get on to the episode. Oh, and in case there was any confusion, Black Lives Matter. May 25, 2020, 47-year-old George Floyd was detained by police on the sidewalks of Minneapolis, Minnesota, for allegedly attempting to purchase cigarettes with a counterfeit $20 bill. The bill wasn't counterfeit, but that didn't stop four officers who responded to the scene from escalating the situation, putting Floyd in handcuffs, placing him under arrest, and eventually, one officer, Derek Chauvin, knelt on George Floyd's neck for eight minutes and 46 seconds. The whole thing was caught on video. The world watched while they killed him. Floyd's death came at the same time that new revelations emerged about two other wrongful murders, those of Ahmaud Arbery and Breonna Taylor in February and March, respectively. They were the latest in a long list of named and unnamed black victims who've lost their lives at the hands of police brutality and white supremacy. And some Americans, Many Americans had had enough. No justice, no peace. 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 This was the song of the summer. On the news, on social media, at City Hall, at the local police station. The summer of unrest, they called it. Isn't it crazy how fast we think of titles like that? Beginning in late May and stretching through June, July, August, and even into the fall months, protesters across the country took to the streets. Some demanded a defunding of police departments. Others wanted police gone entirely. But they all agreed on one thing. Our lives matter. Black lives matter. From L.A. to New York to Chicago, people of every age and every walk of life could be heard shouting that black lives mattered. But at 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue, there was a different sort of sentiment. Our nation has been gripped by professional anarchists, violent mobs, arsonists, looters, criminals, rioters, Antifa, and others. America needs creation, not destruction. Cooperation, not contempt. Security, not anarchy. 
we are ending the riots and lawlessness that has spread throughout our country. We will end it now. President Trump wasn't on the side of the protesters, or rioters, as he called them. And he blamed Democratic mayors and governors for allowing this violence to run rampant in their streets. Standing at a press conference, he told the world, I, I am, am your, your president, president of law and, and order. Trump clearly did not mince words, and we shouldn't have expected him to. The 45th president was running for re-election, which was only a few months away at that time. So his forceful response to the BLM protests aren't exactly surprising, and neither was the response of his Democratic opponent. This is Joe Biden. Black Lives Matter, period. I'm not afraid to say it. Inequities have to be met head on. But Trump and Biden's takes on the protests this summer represent more than just a divided politics of a country that can't seem to agree on anything. They also bring an old relic of election campaign history back from the dead. Campaigning for president during civil unrest? Oh, we've definitely seen that before. Welcome to Presidented Times, the podcast about America's past, America's present, and how it all seems to be repeating itself. I'm Dylan Mims. In this episode, we're going to be reflecting not on the 2020 election, but on one very similar to it, filled with activism, protest, and civil unrest. 1968. He'd always been somewhat of an oddity, but by 1968, the last year of his presidency, Lyndon Baines Johnson was politically toxic. The 59-year-old had gone from being a master legislator and Senate majority leader to being vice president to JFK. And now that he'd finally gotten his chance at the top job, he was blowing it. Badly. Johnson, obviously, ascended to the presidency after Kennedy was shot in Dallas, Texas on November 22, 1963. He was sworn in on Air Force One, with Mrs. Kennedy by his side. He had the moment documented, because he wanted the American people to know that a peaceful transition of power had occurred after Kennedy's death. There were high hopes for the Johnson presidency, which were made even stronger after Johnson put together a winning campaign for president within a year of taking over from Jack. He beat ultra-conservative Senator Barry Goldwater 486 electoral votes to just 52. Johnson had a big agenda planned that tackled everything from civil rights to big social programs to benefiting the needy. He called it the Great Society. But there was just one problem. More than 8,000 miles away, Johnson was entangled by a war in Vietnam. Now, the Vietnam War is just as much Johnson's fault as it wasn't. Every president since Harry Truman more than a decade earlier had vowed to fight growing communism in Vietnam. And in 1954, they started supporting independence movements for a new country called South Vietnam. But Johnson had made some pretty severe miscalculations trying to handle the Vietnam War, and he escalated tensions that ultimately led to a full-scale combat against Northern Vietnam. In his fight to put Vietnamese communism to an end, Johnson sent huge numbers of troops, more than any other president had, and he began bombing Northern Vietnam consistently, starting in 1965. But never mind how inhumane Johnson's war tactics might have been, they also weren't effective. The more troops he sent or bombs he dropped didn't seem to be making the war any more winnable. Johnson kept upping the ante without being able to justify his actions or the toll it was taking on the country. Americans started to call it Lyndon Johnson's War. Hey, hey, LBJ, how many kids did you kill today? went the song and popular rallying cry for demonstrators. 
Even if the war failure wasn't enough, and it definitely was enough, Johnson had also devolved from the calm, professional statesman he'd once been, or at least appeared to be. He lied to the press, often. He was abrasive and short-tempered, often yelling at his own staff. And he had what Lewis Gold calls an essential insecurity that prevented him from trusting his fellow citizens to sustain his policies on their merits. According to Gould, Johnson once asked a friend why people didn't like him. Mr. President, his friend responded, you're not a very likable man. There was also the issue of Johnson's health. It was probably one of the few things he had in common with his former boss, Jack Kennedy. Johnson had multiple bouts of painful kidney stones during his life, and he had a heart attack in 1955 that almost killed him. He'd also been treated for skin cancer earlier in his presidency. His wife, Lady Bird, worried that a second term, especially with the pressures of Vietnam, would kill her husband. It was for all these reasons, and the embarrassing result of the New Hampshire primary in March of 1968, that Johnson ultimately decided not to run for re-election that year. He did what presidents always do. He staged a press conference on March 31, 1968. The camera shot was tight, focusing on the president's face. He stared right back into the camera with that intimidating and unflinching gaze he was known so well for. With America's future under challenge right here at home, with our hopes and the world's hopes for peace and the balance every day, I do not believe that I should devote an hour or a day of my time to any personal partisan causes or to any duties other than the awesome duties of this office, the presidency of your country. Accordingly, I shall not seek and I will not accept the nomination of my party for another term as your president. Johnson essentially argued that he couldn't be a good president and run a good campaign at the same time. Let the record show that at the time of Johnson's speech, he was doing neither of those things. Detractors of the president used to shout, LBJ, just you wait. See what happens in 68. But LBJ had clearly signaled that no one needed to wait that long. The president was done and he opened up a power vacuum that men across the country and across the political spectrum were vying to fill. The first issue any candidate wanting to become president would have to face would be the issue of race. The civil rights movement in America was in full swing in 1968, even though LBJ and the Democrats had passed the Civil Rights Act in 1964 and the Voting Rights Act in 1965. For a lot of black Americans, this progress was coming too little, too late. They were just as poor, just as tired, and just as oppressed as they'd been before some white man in Washington put fancy pen on fancy paper. I told you that 2020 wasn't the first summer of unrest. In the hot months of 1966, 67, and 68, riots in a majority of black and urban areas became a regular occurrence. Republicans put Democrats on the defensive, arguing that the push for civil rights hadn't abated the discontent. If anything, things had just gotten worse. And black Americans themselves were at a fork in the road, half of them wanting to take the more militant, more violent approach to gaining rights they knew they deserved, and the other half wanted to continue down the nonviolent civil disobedience path championed by Dr. King. Now, here's the funny thing about history. It has a habit of oversimplifying everything. 
Textbooks might have you believe that King was this nationally renowned figure who everyone just loved and respected for being nonviolent. But that was far from the truth. In fact, by 1968, Dr. King was losing the small amount of political influence he had. Most white people didn't like him because they thought he was too radical, and half of black people didn't like him because they thought he wasn't radical enough. The movement to embrace a more revolutionary approach to civil rights had taken over most young people in that age, and the more King tried to appease them in his advocacy, the farther he was kept away from the White House and the Johnson administration. And then, if it were possible, just four days after LBJ told the country he wasn't going to run again, things got even worse for the civil rights movement. I have some very sad news for all of you, and that is that Martin Luther King was shot and was killed tonight in Memphis. The riots of the past three summers were nothing compared to the violence that broke out in the wake of King's assassination, and the issue was splitting the country in two. For a lot of black Americans, King's death was a sign that the nonviolence movement wasn't working, so they turned to violence. And, for a not insignificant amount of white radicals, the same sort of permission was implicitly given to up the ante in their own demonstrations. The melting pot New York City was the perfect example of this kind of riot diversity. The violent protests that broke out everywhere from the ghettos of East Harlem to the campus of Columbia University. Mayors across the country were giving shoot-to-kill orders to their police in response to the protests and riots. It was as if someone had opened the floodgates. The question now was, with hey, hey, LBJ, out of the White House and out of the way, who was going to close them? And how? The field to replace Johnson was wide and ranging. There were moderate and far-right conservatives like Nixon, Reagan, and Rockefeller. There were radical establishment liberals like Eugene McCarthy, Robert Kennedy, and Hubert Humphrey. And then there was the one-term governor of Alabama. George Corley Wallace. And I say segregation now, segregation tomorrow, and segregation forever. He was fun. Wallace ran for president in 1968 under the American Independent Party. Now, Wallace knew he didn't have a snowball's chance in Alabama at actually winning the presidency as an independent, but he thought that if he could wrestle away just enough states from the Democrats and Republicans, he could keep either candidate from the electoral votes they needed to win outright. If that happened, the election would be thrown into the House of Representatives, where Wallace, as the governor of a major southern state, could have heavy influence over the candidate that got picked and what policies they enforced. Still not convinced of Wallace's power? I promise you, it's there. If you couldn't tell from that tasteful clip that I played a moment ago, he ran largely on an anti-civil rights, anti-integration, anti-protest platform. I know, I'm as shocked as you are. And even though he was careful not to ever mention race outright, that was clearly the underlying theme of his campaign. Instead, he railed against big government and anarchist protesters. Wallace easily connected with white middle-class voters, and not just those in the South, but across the country. He raised almost a million dollars for his campaign in less than six months, and that was actually a lot back then. He got his name added to just about every state in the Union for the general election. It's hard to say who exactly was more threatened by the presence of George Wallace in that race for president. The Republicans, who were having their central message undercut by a man who wasn't bound by the normal constraints of party politics, or the Democrats, who were being attacked from the right, and now the far right, about how their policies around civil rights hadn't been working. Both parties were definitely feeling the Alabama heat. 
On the Democratic side, Eugene McCarthy, the anti-war senator from Minnesota, was almost entirely responsible for putting the nail in Johnson's campaign coffin. Remember that embarrassing New Hampshire primary I told you about earlier? The one that quickly led to Johnson's withdrawal from the presidential race? That was McCarthy. McCarthy had actually lost the race, but the margin of victory for Johnson as an incumbent president was insanely small. McCarthy basically proved that Johnson wasn't invincible just because he was president. Unfortunately for Senator McCarthy, snuffing a president doesn't make you invincible either. Not even a few days after McCarthy's quote-unquote victory in New Hampshire, none other than Robert Francis Kennedy threw his own hat into the ring for president on a very similar, liberal, anti-war agenda. Bobby had been instrumental in getting his brother elected president in 1960, and then he served as attorney general under President JFK, an appointment that had always seemed kind of questionable, even at the time. Now, he was a U.S. senator from New York, straying a little south of the entrenched Kennedy family establishment in Massachusetts, but taking with it the family name, the money, and the popularity. Using his late brother's legacy as a launching pad, he apparently told aides that, We'll make McCarthy run against Jack, and I'm Jack. There was another candidate in the Democratic field, too, current Vice President Hubert Horatio Humphrey. They used to call him the Great Triple H. No, no they didn't. Nobody called him that. But it was the logo on all his campaign buttons. Humphrey was that sort of moderate, establishment candidate with deep party ties and connections. He was running on what he called the politics of joy. And he did okay in the primaries. But it still looked like a two-man race. At least that's what the other two men thought. Two progressive candidates duking it out for the nomination while the moderate establishment vice president quietly and slowly builds up the delegate lead he needs. Hmm. Now where have I heard that one before? The showdown between Kennedy and McCarthy was sort of legendary in my opinion. Clearly the far left wing of the party wasn't big enough for the both of them. Their primary battles lasted months, each candidate going back and forth, up and down, winning and losing. Kennedy won Indiana, but McCarthy got Wisconsin. McCarthy took Pennsylvania, but Kennedy clinched South Dakota. Eventually, it all came to rest on the delegate-rich California primary on June 4th, 1968. Whoever won that primary could finally prove that he was the stronger candidate to go up against Humphrey at the convention and the Republicans in November. They both understood this. It was probably the fiercest fight of the presidential primary season. After weeks of campaigning, a heated televised debate, and absolute gobs of money being thrown towards advertising, Kennedy finally came out on top with a clear victory on election night. He beat McCarthy by almost five points. He made a victory speech in Los Angeles at the Ambassador Hotel. So I thank, I thank all of you who made this possible this evening, all of the effort that you made and all of the people whose names I haven't mentioned. My thanks to all of you, and now it's on to Chicago and let's win there. Thank you. But then, tragedy struck. Again. This next part of the ABC News coverage is a little hectic, but if you listen closely, you can hear the sound of a gunshot going off in the back kitchen, where Bobby was passing through on his way out. Hey, I want to hear really loud. Senator Kennedy has been shot. Is that possible? Is that possible? It's possible. Is it possible, ladies and gentlemen? It is possible. He has. Not only Senator Kennedy. Oh, my God. Senator Kennedy has been shot. The senator from New York died the next morning. His body traveled from California to New York, then to Washington. 
he was buried in Arlington Cemetery in Virginia with his brother. His campaign, obviously, was done, and so were the left's chances at securing a progressive nominee from the Democratic Party. McCarthy, with his loss in California, slowly faded out of the primary scene. Vice President Hubert Humphrey was now the presumptive nominee, but he'd still have a heck of a fight in front of him. Politics rarely gives second chances, especially not when the nominee of a party loses the presidential race. But a second chance is exactly what fell to Richard Milhouse Nixon in the election of 1968. Nixon grew up lower middle class in California. He attended the local Whittier College and got a degree in history. Even though he eventually worked his way to Duke University Law School, he harbored a deep, deep hatred for Ivy League elites, mostly out of jealousy that he never was one. The big thing with Nixon, for lack of a better word, was that he was always trying to prove himself, to prove that he was just as smart, just as capable, and just as deserving as all those men who could afford to go to Harvard and Yale while he was stuck at a local school. This is at least part of the reason why he was so ambitious and why his political career took off the way that it did. He was elected to Congress in 1948, and he was a senator from the great state of California by 1950. Two years after that, he was Dwight Eisenhower's vice president. After eight years under Eisenhower, Nixon won his party's nomination for president in 1960, but he lost a narrow general election to the young, handsome, and smooth-talking John F. Kennedy, 303 electoral votes to 219. The defeat was probably even more sour because Jack, the product of Choate and Harvard, was just the kind of rich, elite Northeasterner that Nixon hated. After his loss in the presidential election, Nixon ran for governor of California in 1962, but he lost that race too. A pattern was emerging here. The once rising star within the Republican right was now just a loser, out of office and out of luck. But everyone had underestimated Nixon at every step in his career, and he was determined, as always, to prove them wrong. When he launched his second campaign for president, Nixon fought hard to create a new image of himself. The new Nixon, as it was put, wasn't a loser, but a seasoned campaigner who was ready to learn from his mistakes and take another shot at the White House. His campaign, which used the slogan, Nixon's the one, was sturdier than in past elections, and he started off with a war chest of more than $10 million. It wasn't all smooth sailing, though. Even though Nixon had been racking up delegates like nobody's business in the primaries, winning contests in Illinois, New Mexico, Washington, and Montana, there was still a push by two other candidates to steal the delegates away at the convention. One of them was the Republican governor of New York, Nelson Rockefeller. The grandson of John D. Rockefeller and partial heir to his fortune, Nelson had flirted with a campaign for president in 1960 and again in 1964. He clearly wanted to be president. The problem was that nobody else did. Rockefeller was moderate, not hardline conservative the way the party was moving. His battles against conservatives Nixon in 60 and Goldwater in 64 had already made him public enemy number one within most of the GOP's conservative wing. The bigger worry for Nixon was the up-and-coming governor of California, Ronald Reagan. Reagan was a hero to the conservative movement. He was an actor-turned-politician and a Democrat-turned-Republican. He rocketed to political stardom by beating incumbent Democratic Governor Pat Brown by more than a million votes in 1966. Now, Reagan didn't have much governing experience, but he was able to raise tons of money and electrify crowds better than anyone else in his time. Reagan made his candidacy official at the start of the convention, seeming flattered and pleasantly surprised by the overwhelming amount of support he had within Republican rank-and-file members. 
But this is back in the 60s, when nominating a presidential candidate had more to do with delegates than it did with individual votes. And there was a fear among the Nixon camp that some delegates, especially more conservative delegations in the South, might just cross over to the Reagan corner. To keep these delegations in line, Nixon moved his policy platform farther and farther to the right, especially on the issue of race, which was still enveloping most of the country. He met with Republican leaders of southern states just as voting on the first nomination ballot was scheduled to take place. They told him if he wanted their votes on the first ballot, he'd have to make two concessions. The first was a commitment not to use the federal government to enforce integration at the state level. This basically gave southern states the right to be as racist and segregationist as they wanted because they didn't have the Fed looking over their shoulder nudging them along. The second concession, which came a little bit later, was the nomination of Maryland Governor Spiro Agnew as the vice presidential candidate. As governor of Maryland, Agnew had taken a hardline approach to handling civil unrest in his state after the death of Martin Luther King. He spoke passionately in his home state about law and order in American streets and berated black leaders for the behavior of their sympathizers. It was exactly the kind of coded language that appealed to the average white working class American. Although he may have seemed like an asset, Agnew would eventually become a thorn in Nixon's side. In 1973, Agnew would resign as vice president when federal investigators revealed that Agnew had been cheating on his taxes and taking bribes before and since becoming vice president of the United States. Spoiler alert, he would share that fate of resigning in disgrace with his boss in due time. But way, way back in the convention of 68, Spiro pulled through for the campaign and for Richard Nixon, and so did the southern states. In the final tally of the first vote, Nixon got 692 delegates, Rockefeller got 227, and the rising star Reagan got just 182. On August 8, 1968, before the convention and the country, Richard Nixon accepted his party's nomination for the second time. It's time for new leadership for the United States of America. My fellow Americans, tonight I accept the challenge and the commitment to provide that new leadership for America, and I ask you to accept it with me. He had avoided a primary challenge on the second ballot. Supporters in the ballroom waved signs that read, Nixon's the one. Hubert Humphrey was in a similar position to Richard Nixon. They had both been vice president. He had an unexciting but pretty secure lock on his party's nomination. There was just one problem. The party. Heading into the convention, Humphrey had 1,250 delegates, and he only needed 1,312 delegates to win. But he'd gotten this far more on circumstance and name recognition than for his actual campaign. And, for the record, his campaign was terrible. The VP was unpopular, so his rallies never went well. There was terrible infighting among his senior campaign staff, and after Bobby Kennedy died, moderate donors who had just been trying to stave off the left switched their financial support to Nixon, so all of Humphrey's money dried up. And all of those anti-war RFK supporters still hadn't gotten over the loss of Kennedy. They were divided, dejected, and angry about their new presumptive nominee. They tried finding replacements, Senator George McGovern, Senator McCarthy again, but nobody stuck. And all the while, across the ocean, Vietnam just kept getting worse. The Soviets had gotten even more aggressive in the war, and Johnson, in turn, responded with even more aggression. Liberals were panicking. They were positive that unless Democrats ran on a platform to end the Vietnam War, they would lose. 
But LBJ, who still had a major influence within the party, had already made it clear that if the Democrats abandoned the war, it would undercut what he was trying to do in office. Johnson gave an even stronger message to his VP, Humphrey, who he basically bullied into not doing anything too drastic or radical on the war platform. Desperately, liberals turned to their only option, a protest outside the convention against the war and Humphrey's nomination. The Democratic Convention of 1968 took place in Chicago, Illinois, more than 1,000 miles away from the Republicans in Miami, Florida. The location had been the idea of Chicago Mayor Richard Daley, who thought it would help Johnson, who was still running at that time, carry Illinois as a state. But now, in the face of urban riots and a fractured party, Chicago was seeming like a terrible choice for a venue for the Democrats. The city would soon be flooded with more than 10,000 protesters from different liberal interest groups, coming by plane, train, and automobile. All types of demonstrators, from college activists to hippies in their 30s, occupied the parks across from the International Amphitheater, where the delegates were meeting. Inside the hall, liberals were working on creating new rules for a nomination that would hopefully lead to a more progressive candidate getting the nod in 1972. But outside the hotel, more than 18,000 local and state police officers were put on the scene trying to keep the protests from getting out of hand. After advocating so hard for the Democrats to come to Chicago, Mayor Daley wasn't about to face the embarrassment of a large riot breaking out in his city. But that's exactly what happened. Protesters had been occupying Lincoln Park on the north side of Chicago. Around 11 p.m. on the first night of the convention, police started using tear gas to drive them out of Lincoln Park for breaking the city's imposed curfew. The same thing happened the next night, too. By day three of the convention, August 28th, protesters had migrated to a new park a little farther away, but it didn't take long for violence to break out there, too. When a young demonstrator climbed a flagpole to take down the American flag, police pounced on the boy. They clubbed him, and in response, protesters started hurling bricks and bits of food at the policemen. From there, things devolved into a full-scale riot by nighttime. Violent protesters charged the streets where policemen shouted, Kill! Kill! They shouted back, The world is watching. The whole world is watching. At one point, the smell of tear gas made its way into the hall of the convention itself. The violence left a huge wave of destruction in its wake. More than 750 people were injured in total, and about 600 demonstrators were arrested on the streets of Chicago. But inside the convention hall, the left's efforts were futile. Humphrey won the nomination with more than 1,760 delegates. He crushed all competition. But he was nominated by a party that was in shambles, that was disconnected and feuding among itself. In the end, the protests had done more harm than good for the Democrats. More than 71% of Americans supported law enforcement who had fought back against the protests, regardless of their intentions. It had been a disaster of a convention. Here's the funny little thing about history. We like to hold on to what we call turning points and wrap them up in a neat little bow, but that's not really how history works. In truth, the Democrats were screwed way before they got to the convention hall in Chicago. But because of all the events that happened at Chicago, we like to frame it like this convention is what did them in. Anyway, Democrats stumbled into the general election campaign. But Nixon entered it like a bullet train. It was the tale of two parties, two conventions, two candidates. Nixon continued to play on the fears of the working class, emphasizing his previous calls for law and order. Here's a little bit of a campaign ad he made in that time. We owe it to the decent and law-abiding citizens of America to take the offensive against the criminal forces that threaten their peace and their security. 
and to rebuild respect for law across this country. I pledge to you, the wave of crime is not going to be the wave of the future in America. The message may seem corny now, but it was absolutely working in 1968. Nixon was the national frontrunner, and the frontrunner in just about every battleground state, and then some. Humphrey, on the other hand, had relatively little to show for his efforts, even among his own supporters. He was too close to Johnson to get the anti-war vote, and he was too ambivalent about the war to earn any favor from Johnson or his supporters. Humphrey's closeness to Johnson, honestly, ended up being his fatal flaw. Of course, LBJ didn't help his number two at all. He kept Humphrey in this cruel sort of limbo, forcing him not to stray too far from the president, but also withholding his endorsement. Johnson honestly wasn't even sure if he supported Humphrey for the position. He reportedly told aides that he thought Nixon would do a better job of handling the crisis than Humphrey would. Now, Johnson did eventually endorse Humphrey, but it came too little too late. In the early morning hours of November 6, 1968, the day after the election, it was clear that Nixon had won the presidency. When it was all said and done, he'd beaten Humphrey, 301 electoral votes, to 191. George Wallace, surprisingly, had won five states, totaling 46 votes. He was, and still is, the most successful third-party candidate in American history, but he came up short of his goal of throwing the race into the House of Representatives. Nixon took the stage in the short hours after midnight, the winner of one of the most turbulent elections in American history. Having lost a close one eight years ago and having won a close one this year, I can say this. Winning's a lot more fun. <laughs> Nixon wouldn't be in the White House all that long, all things considered. The Watergate scandal would undo his presidency in its sixth year. But with the election of 1968, he turned the tide of electoral politics in America. Republicans, who'd lost just about every election since 1945, would go on to win the elections of 72, 80, 84, and 88 because of the momentum that Nixon started. The GOP's success and the Democrats' failure can all be traced back to those two controversial issues that sparked such intense emotions within the country, race and Vietnam. One man exploited the issue to his gain. The other let the issue exploit him to his demise. And if you listen to the sort of law and order talk that was in that campaign ad that Nixon used to rail against civil unrest caused by race issues, it's exactly the kind of tactic Trump tried to employ to get reelected in 2020, with one clear difference. It didn't work this time. This tried and true Republican strategy failed, and it never fails. By all means, Trump was employing a winning strategy, except that he didn't win. Instead, America chose Joe Biden who may not have been the dream of the BLM movement, but was a thousand times better for their cause than the other guy. We have a president who's willing to say that black lives matter. Not all lives matter, but that black lives matter. And we can't forget what a big deal that is. 1968 secured decades of Republican rule over the federal government. Who knows what kind of policies might have been enforced or not enforced if the election had gone the other way, of what kind of country we would be right now. There's no way to know. But now, in the wake of another summer of unrest, America has the chance to try again, to actualize change and justice the way we failed to in the 60s. 
Now, what will that look like in terms of policy, in terms of police reform, economic justice, reparations? I have no idea. But either way, in the past election, Americans, 80 million Americans, chose the party and president that tied themselves to activism instead of anti-activism, to justice instead of oppression, to compassion instead of combat. And if that's not unprecedented, then I don't know what is. I'm Dylan Mims. Thank you for listening to Precedented Times. If you like what you heard, and we hope that you do, please make sure to check us out anywhere you get your podcasts. We'll be back with another episode next Wednesday. This episode of Precedented Times draws primarily from the work of Lewis L. Gold of the University of Texas and his 1993 book, 1968, The Election That Changed America. As always, we thank and credit his incredible research, without which this show would not be possible. Thanks again for listening. And until the next precedented time.